C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, many of you have read him as well, he says that God whispers in the pleasures of our life, but he shouts to us in our pain. God whispers to us in the pleasures of our life. The reason that we don't sense God's voice oftentimes in the pleasures or the joys of life is because we can see him in those. When something good happens to us, it's so easy to thank God for that and know that he is with us and for us and we can sense his smile in that moment. But in pain, when we're struggling, when we're fearful, when we're worried, when we're afraid, when we're hurting, God oftentimes is trying to get our attention through shouting, through screaming, through yelling at us. He wants to get our attention. He wants us to go to him. That's why in pain, there's only two ways to go, either away from God or to God. We will either run away from God because we're mad at him, we're frustrated at him, we believe he's the source of our pain and so we'll blame him. We ask the question, how could a good God allow this to happen in our lives? And so we don't communicate with him anymore, we stop going to church, we stop praying, reading the Bible, we run away. Or we can run to God. Knowing he's our refuge, our strength, our source of joy, our source of peace. That nothing good can come out of this unless God does something. Which is why he shouts at us to bring us back to him. That's why the psalmist David, who is credited for writing a lot of the psalms, writes often about pain and sorrow. And we see that in a lot of the psalms, especially Psalm 25, which we'll look at today. Psalm 25 is in a category of what we call the lament psalms. This category called the lament psalms, it gives us permission to be raw and gut level honest with God. You know, I don't know when this happens, but there comes a time in our journey with Christ, either before we believe or after, where we believe we have to be fake robots with God. Even when life is really hard and we're in a lot of pain, instead of expressing that to God and expressing that to the other people, we reply with, oh, we're fine. Everything's great. Praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah, brother, sister. You know what I'm talking about? But why do we do that? Why don't we allow scripture to speak in these times? Why don't we take our cues from David and from others who want us to be gut level honest and raw with God? Do you think God wants a fake you? Do you think he wants you to pretend with him? That's inauthentic. He wants us to be real and gut level honest with him. And David does that throughout Psalm 25. Look at he says in verse 17 and 18. He says, my problems, they go from bad to worse. Oh, save me from them all. Feel my pain and see my trouble. Forgive me of all of my sins. I love what David says in the beginning because I can relate with that. My problems, they go from bad to worse. Have you ever experienced that? <laughs> Where you have something going on in your life and it's already bad, whether it's financially or something breaks in your home or something in your relationships or something with your kids or at work and you're like, I cannot get any worse than this. And then all of a sudden, God, who must be busy doing God knows what, <laughs> Seems like he has forgotten us, and it seems like more pain, more sorrow happens in our lives. 
It goes from bad to worse. And I'm looking like, God, like, do you not see me? Do you not care? In times like this, it feels like I'm drowning. And when I'm putting my hand out for God to rescue me, it seems like and feels like he puts my head underwater. He doesn't care. And David, in this moment, when he is drowning and there is no lifeguard to save him, he is crying out to God, save me from this pain and trouble. My life is horrible right now. It keeps getting worse. Where are you, God? That's what it means to be honest with him. Not, oh God, thank you for the pain in my life. It feels so good to have problems. We're not fake and weird when it comes to these things. We need to be honest and gut level honest with the Lord. And then one of these reasons David feels this way, we see this in Psalm, 20, Psalm 25 two, and later in 19, he says, listen God, I trust you, but do not let me be disgraced or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. See how many enemies I have and how viciously they hate me. Protect me. Rescue my life from them. There's these enemies out to get David. Now David's the king, so he can hide behind a palace. He can hide behind guards. But it doesn't matter. Everywhere he goes and every single day he wakes up, his life is threatened. People want to take him out. People want to kill him. He's not saying, oh God, praise you for my enemies. Thank you for letting my life be threatened every day. We would think there's something wrong with him if he said that, right? Then why do we say the same thing to God in our problems? Why do we act like everything's okay when it's not? That's why David in the Lament Psalm says, listen, will you stop being inauthentic and fake and be real with God? Take off the masks. He wants the real you because the more we're real with God, the more that he can help us in our pain and suffering. But there's three words that David says in Psalm 25 that sums it all up. And I wonder if you and I can relate to these words as well. Psalm 25, 16, he says, Turn to me and have mercy, for I am alone and in deep distress. I am alone. You ever felt alone? You ever felt the pain of feeling like nobody cares? Feeling like there's a lot of people in this world and yet you're the only one there? Ever feel insignificant and valueless and not appreciated? Do you ever feel like it's just you trying to swim through life and hopefully you don't drown along the way? Even though people seem like they care, it just feels like it's just you. I am alone. Three words that if we don't get help with our loneliness, in the end can swallow us up. A couple weeks ago, uh, we were at my son Micah's t-ball game, and Hudson had to play after him. It was the last game, and after uh, the final inning, the kids got snacks. Now, snacks and t-ball are really, really big deal. It matters more than anything. I would argue in my life, snacks are a really, really big deal as well. But for kids in t-ball, it's, it's the thing. Like Micah, my son, when he's playing, he's not saying, Daddy, do I get to play more? He's saying, Daddy, do you know who brought the snack and what kind of snack is it? I'm like, Micah, I'm asking the same thing, buddy. I want some snacks as well, you know. I'm thinking with you here. Well, after the snack at his last game, he came out of the dugout to go find his mommy and daddy. Well, Daddy went over to help coach 
his other son. And mommy thought daddy was supposed to be responsible and take care of Micah. And both of us left the field and went to the other field without Micah. I know, you're judging me, and that's okay. Let me explain what happened, all right? So Micah, he comes out, and he has his snack, and he's looking around. No mommy, no daddy. And so these tears start streaming down his face. I know, when I heard this story, I felt badly too. <laughs> oh, my heart broke. And it was, it was an honest mistake. But the funny thing is, the ironic thing is, there are people all around him. Kids, coaches, parents, people that he knew. But it didn't matter for him in that moment. He felt so alone, like he was the only person at the ball fields. Now, thankfully for us, God is a graceful God and a kind God, and he helps parents who are irresponsible parents. And in walks in, at that moment, Ken Rawson, who leads our middle school ministry. And he sees this boy who's crying, who doesn't have parents around, and figures out that it's Pastor Eric's son. Awesome. So he goes up to him, and he's like, where are your parents? He's like, I don't know. And finally, luckily, Paula was only a few feet away, and so he takes him and takes him to Paula, and all is good now, thank God. But when I heard that story, my heart broke, figured out we need to have a better communication between my wife and I when it comes to these things. But like I said before, the irony is he was around all of these people, and yet he felt alone. And I thought, how many of us feel that way as well? You know, Ohio State Stadium holds 107, 108,000, maybe even more than that. And if you feel alone in life, you can be in the midst of over 100,000 people and feel like you're the only one there. And I'm not just talking about people who are just struggling in life, who you would point to and say, yeah, that person, because of their circumstances, surely they feel alone. I'm talking about people who when you see them have a smile on their face and they're the people that you think have it all together and everything is good in life. I'm talking about the people who are married, who have kids, who have grandkids, who have a really good job, who have a lot of followers on social media, who come to a church like this. There are a lot of people in this world who feel so alone. Some of us can articulate it, others of us can't. And that loneliness, that isolation... That hole in our hearts and our souls. You can't do anything to cure it, it feels like. It's just there. And the reason that I know this is a problem, especially in America, is psychologists have called this loneliness issue a loneliness epidemic. That it's getting worse and worse in our culture. Cigna, which is a leading health group in America, they did a survey of over 20,000 Americans and they use the UCLA model, which is an academic model, to measure loneliness. And the results from that survey are staggering. Half of Americans, half of the people in this room, report sometimes are always feeling alone or left out. Dare I say the other half are lying. It's a problem. We don't talk about it enough. One in four Americans, or about 27%, rarely or never feel as though there are people who really understand them. Two in five, so about 40% of Americans, sometimes are always feel that their relationships are not meaningful and that they are isolated from others. Again, these are people who are in good marriages, who have kids and grandkids and good friends and coworkers, 
and people in their lives who care for them. Yet almost 40% of America feels like those relationships can't touch that loneliness factor inside of us that a lot of us struggle with. And the scariest statistic, this was given to people who are 18 and over. Generation Z, which is adults ages 18 to 22, say they're the loneliest generation. That's not what scares me. What scares me is it's getting worse. Our kids, our grandkids, their generation is going to be lonelier than this. And you want to know how I know it's getting worse in our culture? Suicide rates are going up. There's nobody who commits suicide that wants to. But every single person that does feel like it's their only way out. And many times, it's because they feel isolated and alone and they don't know how they're going to get out of this. This is a big deal. Not just people who look like they're lonely, but it's the people in this room who are going to smile and when people say, ask how you're doing, you're gonna say everything's fine. But it's not. A lot of us feel alone, like the psalmist says. So where does it come from? Why do we feel this way? Well, the psalmist, David, he gives us some categories These are general categories. It's not going to be a catch-all thing, but I wonder if you and I can find ourselves in one or two of these categories. And the first one that we see in Psalm 25 are these outward circumstances. Again, verse 19, David says about his enemies. So for him, he has these enemies pressing in from the outside in, causing him to feel lonely. Now, I don't know if you have enemies. Maybe you do. Probably not trying to kill you. If they are, can you come tell me afterwards? We need to get you help, okay? But most of us probably don't have enemies who want to kill us, but we have things on the outside that's coming into our lives that are making us feel lonely. One of those things that I feel is at the center of loneliness is how many of us feel misunderstood for who we are. At an early age, you and I never think we have to be fake. There is something beautiful about a child of letting themselves just be themselves. That's why we love being around kids. They're just who they are. But there comes a time in life for kids and now for us where we were our authentic selves and something happened where it shut us down. Family member, a friend, a sports team, a teacher, something along the way, either early childhood or later in life, where we looked at ourselves, our God-given selves, a personality that no other human has had and will ever have, our authentic selves, and we tell ourselves we can't be that anymore. And when you and I feel rejected for our authentic selves, what happens is we become someone that we're not. And we may get approval for that. And that feels good in the moment. But afterwards, when we're truly just with ourselves and truly trying to be who we are, and we realize we're accepted for someone that we're not, and we take the masks off and we hang it up, and we go to bed and we realize, oh my goodness, I was someone that I'm not to get approval that doesn't matter. What do you do with that? What a lonely existence that is. Some of us know exactly what I'm talking about right now. Others of us, I think the the survey nails it. It's some of our relationships. You know what's interesting? And this isn't statistically. This is just seeing it every single day come through my office or in the church. You know one of the loneliest relationships 
which is so backwards, is marriage. When people get married, I don't know anyone the day of their marriage that says, I cannot wait to be cold and distant from my spouse someday. No, it's I love you, I'm going to be with you, I do, I do, I do, all of these different things. And then something happens along the way, doesn't it? Where we stopped working at our marriage, we became selfish, other things took over, and now the person who's supposed to be our best friend, our confident, the person that we can take our mask off and be our authentic self with, somehow that has changed, and now we are roommates with the person that's supposed to be the love of our life. That is so lonely to be in that existence. To be roommates with someone that's supposed to be everything but... There's some of us where I've heard this, and I can't imagine, I pray it won't happen to me, but I know it's happened to some of you, where your kids or your grandkids turn their back on you. You give them everything, financial support, relational support, you do whatever it takes to be their parent or be their grandparent, and then when they figure out they don't need you anymore, they turn their backs on you. What a lonely feeling that must be. How horrible that must be for you sitting here today, knowing how much you care about your children and care about your grandchildren. They don't care about you. How do you get through that? What do you do with that? I think of people in their seasons of life right now who are single or divorced or separated longing to be with somebody, coming in to a room like this. Everyone else has somebody they're sitting next to. Everybody else has someone to live their lives with, and here you are, single, divorced, separated. The dream that you had to be married, you don't have it anymore. How sad that must be. For some of us in this room, we're going down this path of grief. If you're not grieving right now, you should count yourself blessed. Grief is awful. Because everybody else feels badly for you, but they're not in your shoes. And people forget about you after time, but you're still on that lonely path. And you have to walk it alone. It doesn't matter how many people in your life, they won't get it. Grief is a lonely thing. There are many things in our world that cause loneliness. I wonder what that is for you. So those are some of the outward circumstances that may have caused loneliness. There's another category that I wonder if some of us feel this way. It's what I'm calling inward struggles. And David, he just gives two words for inward struggles, pain and trouble. Like there's categories in our lives where we're just feeling pain and trouble. And there's sometimes where if I were to ask you, do you feel lonely? You would say, I do. And if I were to ask you why, you wouldn't be able to articulate it. And that's not a surprise to me. I call this category an iceberg category. Because at the tip of the iceberg, you can see some of the iceberg, but the mass of the iceberg is underneath the water. It's hidden. And so it is with our lives. You and I can point to things at the surface that may be causing our loneliness. But underneath the surface, this iceberg, there are childhood wounds and other struggles and other fears and other things you've picked up along the way that are underneath the surface that you don't even know is a part of your life. And there you are, carrying those around. And they're causing loneliness, and you don't even know why. They're just there. We'll get back to that in a moment. Let me give you one more category that you may not be thinking of that causes loneliness. Whereas these other ones, you can point to other people and say, you know what, that causes loneliness in my life. This one is self-induced. This one, you can blame on God and you can blame on other people, but this one we have to take responsibility for. 
And he says this in verse 18, forgive all my sins. Sin is an isolating thing in our lives. I said this before, I want to say it again because I know we don't get it yet. Because I don't get it yet. When I say the word sin, immediately you guys and me, we're thinking of a list of things we should or shouldn't do. And they may, that may be true down the line. The reason we like sin to be over here and in a list that we can judge for ourselves if we should or shouldn't do it and we judge other people if they do it or don't is because we like to look down on people. When we judge other people for these sins in their lives, we can say, oh my goodness, I can't believe they struggle with this. That's a lot of reasons why people don't come to church. They come in and they, you, we may not have a list of the chapel sins we're going to look down upon, but people can feel that and sense that and know that by social media, know that by how we talk with other people outside the church. And so they're like, now if the chapel thinks this, then I'm not coming. And you may say, well, Eric, what if it, what if it is a sin? And I would say, it may be. But the only one that I see in the Bible that's allowed to judge is God. Am I right? So, if that's the case then instead of judging other people about what they're doing, and that may be wrong, I don't care about that. I care about us. At the heart of sin, it's two things, pride and selfishness. Not other people and what they should or shouldn't do, but it's at the heart of our lives that what we should or shouldn't do. And because we don't do that, and we like to blame other people and look down on other people and get mad at other people, we miss out on we're the ones that are isolating ourselves from God and others and we don't even know it. That's what pride is. Pride is literally saying, God, you've created me. Awesome. You did a great job. But you know what? I want to lead my own life. Listen, if you're leading your own life and you're coming to church and you're praying and you're reading the Bible and you're doing all these godly things and yet you don't sense God in your life, it's because God isn't in your life. And you may say, whoa, theologically. No, 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 I'm not saying about that. Relationally. You can't lead your life and expect God just to do his thing in your life as well. No, 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 God wants all of us. And when we control our lives, we start to build up walls with God that he can't penetrate us anymore. That's why we come hardened to things that God is passionate about and kind about. It's the reason why we feel so alone when it comes to our relationship with God, even though we're going through the motions of everything else. But also at the heart of sin is selfishness. Selfishness is a relational thing. Or maybe it's the anti-relational thing. Do you want to be in a relationship with someone that's selfish and all about them? And we wonder why when we're selfish, people don't want to be in a relationship with us. There's some of us that are alone and we blame other people that they don't come to us anymore, they don't like us anymore, they're not in our lives anymore. Let's look back at our track record. Have we been selfish? Have we cared all about us and it has to be our way and we're the ones that have to be in control? Of course no one wants to be in your life. You've built walls up around yourself. And people don't want to be in relationships with selfish people. That's not a relationship. And so sin is a big reason why we're feeling lonely. So what do we do about it? What should God do about it? I get so sick of myself 
If I were God, I would literally give up on me. I'm not kidding you. I'm like, dude, you have to run out of chances for me <laughs> since yesterday. <laughs> not even the last 33 years of my life. Is that what God does? Isaiah, looking ahead to Christ, describes God and who he is. And we think God is this big, majestic figure, and he is. But we forget God is also alike with us in one specific way, especially. Look at Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. That sure sounds lonely to me. If you were despised and rejected, and many of us feel that way, that's loneliness. The reason he's lonely is because he came from heaven to enter into a relationship with his people, but we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Literally, Jesus comes to us, and we see Jesus, and we say, ah, no thanks. You go over there and go do your God thing. I'm going to go do my thing. And so we reject Jesus. Now, Jesus has two options. He continues to reject us, which any human would. If someone rejects you, you're like, I'm done with you. God doesn't do that. He says later, yet. When you see a yet, but, or however, oftentimes in the Bible, that signifies grace. Yet, even though we make Jesus lonely, he was lonely because it was our weaknesses that he carried. He was lonely because it was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment of his own sins. No, 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 no. He was lonely and pierced and literally killed for our rebellion. He was crushed spiritually for our sins. He was beaten physically so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Do you see what's happening here? Those walls that we've built up with God and with other people, Jesus has come to break the walls down. He sees all the things that we've done in our relationships with God and with others. And instead of judging us and pointing the finger and saying, ha ha, you did this to yourself, you figure it out. Jesus takes on the loneliness of our sin so you and I will never feel like we have to be alone. That's why when you leave here today, because of what Jesus has done on the cross and then is resurrected three days later, you may feel lonely and that is so real. But because Jesus was lonely as well, he will never leave you alone. No matter what you're going through, you may, you may think that's cliche. Oh, we're lonely, but we'll never be alone. Let me tell you, when that's the only thing that you have and you're drowning in your life, you have to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will not abandon you. It's your only life. And you may say, well, Eric, how do you know that? You're a pastor. You get to teach. You're really close to God. <laughs> I've gone through something in my life over the last year, and I've just been praying and asking the Lord, when should I share this, if I should share this with our church? And God says, now's the time. So about a year ago, I woke up one day, and I felt like I couldn't get out of bed. Now, I met someone last week at Port Clinton campus who literally for five years gets out of bed, goes to work, and goes home. She comes to church. Other than that, she can't physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally get out of bed. When I say that, I could get out of bed. I could function. But I was carrying this weight 
of loneliness. That was weighing me down so badly, I honestly didn't know what was going to happen to me. My wife, she didn't know about it until one day I just cried out to her. I feel so alone. No one knew about it. In fact, my mom heard about it last week. Some of our pastors found out about it because I was so struggling. One of our staff members said, Eric, I had no idea. I didn't tell the staff. In fact, there was a time where I had to lead a meeting. I was in my office hyperventilating, and I was having a panic attack because I just didn't think that I could do this. But I walked in with a smile on my face. There were times when I'd be in the atrium before coming here or sitting here, and I felt so alone, but I knew I had to come up here and do my thing. Well, I, it kept getting progressively worse and worse as the fall went on last year. So one day, I'm sitting with our elders. They're the ones that lead the church. I'm accountable to them. And they ask me, Eric, how are you doing? And normally, I'm that guy that's like, great, awesome, go Browns. This is awesome. Life is great. You know, I look him in the eyes, and I said, I'm not doing well. And I said to them in this occasion, I said, I think I'm going to have to step down from my job. It was so real to me. I didn't know what else to do. I felt like a failure as a parent, a failure as a dad, a failure as a pastor, and not anyone was making me feel that way, so to speak, but I could tell that I had no other option in my life but to feel that way. So time went on. Another couple weeks, the elders said, Eric, how are you doing? Because they're really concerned. And I looked them in the eyes and I said, I, I can't do this anymore. I wanted to resign that night. They looked me in the eyes, and before they said, Eric, you should go to counseling. And when they said that, I thought, have you been talking to my wife? Because she's been telling me the same thing here. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, they hadn't talked. But I'll tell you, when they mentioned counseling, I kind of got frustrated because counseling is for weak people. Even though I push people to counseling, even though I counsel people for a living, I thought it was for weak people, and so... I excused it away, and I said, no, I'll be fine. I'll get my life together. People are counting on me. I can do this. Well, the second time I told them that I, I am at that point where I wasn't suicidal, but I had thoughts in my mind, like, I have no other way out. What do I do? They said, you have two weeks to find a counselor. I said, oh, shoot. <sighs> so I emailed this guy. I basically tried to convince him not to take me on as a client. I did so in a really biblical way, too. It was really awesome. And at the end, he replies back to me, and I can't tell you exactly what he said. I don't remember, but he basically said two words, try me. I thought, oh, shoot, now I'm really in trouble. So I drive out. Um, it's far away. I drive out to this counseling place, and I walk in. I'm thinking, this is going to be a scam. I have to get my life in order. Why am I wasting my time here? And at the end of the hour, I begged him for another hour. <laughs> Remember how I told you that oftentimes there's issues in our lives underneath the surface that you don't even know what's happening. Well, I could tell you some of the things that are causing the iceberg, but there was all these other things happening. And he took a huge ice pick and he went after that iceberg and he started to chip away. One time he hit that, he went, you have childhood wounds. I'm like, no, I don't. 
my parents are divorced, but I have a good mom, a good dad. And then he said a couple things, and he pointed a couple things. I'm like, oh, wow, I do. But I never knew that. I grew up for 33 years never knowing this. And yet now I see it as clear as day. And so I continued on in this journey and sought professional help in other ways. And now I want you to know that I'm still in counseling. And I'm still struggling. Even last night, while all my family's asleep, my beautiful kids, my beautiful wife, who loves me and supportive, I was on the couch just struggling. But I don't tell you this for you guys to feel badly for me. And if you think me telling you this makes me look weak, I want you to know you're so right. Remember I told you that counseling's for weak people? I found out that's true. And I am weak. When I just kept trying to fix my life, it kept breaking more. But when I admitted that I was broken, God started to fix me. I'm not fixed, and I'll never be fixed, but I'm in process of being fixed. And I see a counselor still. I have an appointment with him in a couple weeks. But I tell you that because the loneliness feeling that you have, I feel the same way. I'm in the same boat with you. I struggle with it as well. But I want to tell you just a couple things to close our time together that have helped me, and I'm praying that they help you. And let me tell you, I've been praying for you. I don't just say that. I want you to know I'm in the boat with you as one who struggles too. So let me just give you a couple reasons out of Psalm 25 that have helped me. Because we're never alone, because God will not abandon us, we can take hold of his hand. I know how cliche that sounds, but let me walk you through this. Here's the thing that I love. This is how the psalmist starts in verse 1. Oh, Lord, I give my life to you. He doesn't say, I give my Sunday morning to you. Or I give you my five minutes before I go to bed. Or five minutes when I wake up. His life. He wills his life over to God and says, it's not mine anymore. It's yours. You and I will never sense God in its, its truest sense if we try to control our own lives. If we give God control, well, that can change things. Show me the right path, O oh Lord. I love verse 5. All day long, I put my hope in you. Hope is a futuristic word. Every day, all day. Not just on Sundays. Not just before mealtime. All day, he's looking at God and saying, God, if you don't have a future for me, I am in trouble. And for me, when I was and still go through those dark times where I can't see the next step in front of me, I'm like, God, I'm hoping in you have to help me. And he oftentimes does. And the way the Lord leads, I love this, with unfailing love and faithfulness. He's in it with you. He's not giving up on you. So take hold of his hand. The second thing is that has helped is embrace his forgiveness. I love the psalmist in verse 11 says, forgive my many, many sins. Not just many, many, many sins. If I was writing that, I'd be like many, 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 many sins. And yet he understands that if he asks for forgiveness, God will break down those walls in his life. And when he receives that forgiveness, he's able to get it from others and then say, I'm sorry to other people. There's some of us in this room that haven't said sorry in a really long time, and we wonder why our relationships are bad. Accept his forgiveness so you can receive it and give it to other people. So those walls start coming down. In another place in the Psalms, David literally says this, finally, He's like, okay, I've had enough of this. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt, and you forgave me, and my guilt is gone. You can see the weight lifting off of David. So, too, it can be for us if we do that with God as well. 
And then finally, this is just from my own journey, like I just shared with you, that's helped me is you have to be real and you can't heal if you don't get help. Please don't do what I did for years and years. I thought I could fix my own life. And I ended up really, really close to a place that I never want to go back to again. And if you're here today, we have resources available to you. The pastors, we can help you, but we can only see the tip of the iceberg. You need someone who can get that ice pick and start to go to town on the mass underneath of your heart and soul. There are resources. There are people there. But if you continue to think weak people like Eric are the only ones that need help and you don't, well, I don't know what will happen for you. But in the end, if you feel lonely and you only remember one thing I said, just remember in your loneliness, God will never abandon you. He became lonely, so you'll never have to be that way. In our loneliness, we will never be alone. So let's pray together. So Lord, I give this to you. I give our people to you. At least half of them are feeling this way. The other half, maybe they feel that way too. God, you have a lot of help for us. Your presence, your people, forgiveness, confession. God, help us to take those available tools around us. And even when those things don't help, God, there are professionals that want to help us. This is such a stigma in our culture. It's time to break the stigma, Lord, and you're doing that. And you do that for people who are vulnerable. Help us to be vulnerable so we can get the help that's available to us. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.